And I said to myself, what is an Irish guy doing in the Italian Opera Company of Brooklyn? This is Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. Centerpiece NY is a podcast that traces the lives of long-standing members of the Irish community in New York, many of whom we have come to know through a place called the New York Irish Centre in Queens. For this episode, our centerpiece is John Houlihan, born and reared in Ireland's capital, Dublin, who came to New York in 1970, a dub and a Brooklynite. For an island as small as Ireland, with a size, we are sometimes reminded of the state of Maine, give or take, in a population in and around just six and a half million. The diversity of spoken dialects never ceases to amaze. Pronunciations and stresses and intonations, even the words themselves in common use, can change dramatically within a range of just 50 miles. Stretch that distance as far as is physically possible, and you'll find the accents of the people of the southwest of Cork and Kerry, and those in the northeast of Belfast and the Glens of Antrim, are a universe apart. In Ireland's capital, deep in the heart of the old city, in the Dublin of the rare old times, where the purest Guinness springs forth alongside the River Liffey, there is an accent as unique and distinct as any spoken in the land, as rich in sound and depth as the history and heritage of the great city itself. John Houlihan, a resident of Brooklyn for many of the years, speaks the language of Dublin. Let's listen as he plots his American life on our map. I came to America on April the 17th, 1970. And it was a very cold, windy and snowy day when I arrived at Kennedy Airport. I came like everybody else, to look for a better life, the land of opportunities. Began to play football in the Gaelic Park with Cork, the Cork football team. I played with them for four or five years which they also helped me to get a job in construction. So I stayed in construction for four years or so, and then I did a test to get into the New York City Transit Authority, which I passed, and I stayed there for almost 35 years. I worked in the IRT first for about 10 years, and then when I moved to Brooklyn, I transferred to the BMT. The IRT was run by Independent Rapid Transit, and the BMT was the Brooklyn Metropolitan Transit. And after so many years, they amalgamated and they formed the New York City Transit Authority, which is part of the Long Island Railroad, which is part of the MTA. I was employed as a conductor on the subway trains. When I joined it, there was a lot of Irish still there, very few there today. It was a good steady job and uh, the benefits were great. I retired about 15 years ago. 205 I retired. New York City is one of the few places, and maybe the only place in America, where you can get by and live a normal life without owning a car. While there are some so-called transportation deserts within the city's five boroughs, it is the New York City subway that makes this so. 
The majority of John's working life was spent underground, immersed in the tunnels and station platforms of a system that keeps a great city constantly circulating, never letting it sleep. The New York City subway system is over 100 years old. It's a 24-hour system. If you were to stretch out the tracks and make one track out of the whole system, it'd run from here to Detroit, Michigan, about 865 miles. It has 400 and 34 stations, to the best of my knowledge. Over 4,500 conductors, the same amount of train operators. So there's a massive rail oh, infrastructure massive, in massive. And they also have a large bus system too. When John was first offered the job of a conductor in the subway, for an instant he thought he might be asked to walk up and down the subway cars shouting, fares please, as was the role of a conductor on the Dublin buses of his youth. Turns out the job as a conductor on a subway train was very different. I was a conductor in the middle of the train, where I opened and closed the doors, let the people N-train and D-train, as we called it. It might seem odd, but when you open the doors, you have 10 seconds, which is not an awful lot, for the people to D-train and for the people to N-train. Then you close the back of the train first, then you close the front of the train, you turn your key, by that time, the motorman has got indication in the cab where he's sitting and the light comes on. That tells him, before he can move, all the doors are locked and sealed. Then he releases the brake and he goes to the next station. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Of course, it wasn't always glamorous among the dark tunnels of the midnight shift. As is too often the case, the difficult problems in society tend to live beneath the surface. The homeless has been a problem for years and years and years. The poor unfortunate to get on the train with his basket or his carriage full of stuff. And you can't really all go over there and put your hand on them and throw them off. You just can't do that. And even the cops today, you got to wear the gloves and to try to, to walk them out. And the city has a terrible problem with this. Oh, you're not homeless. I'm not going to see anyone who's this very poor and changed, really appreciate it. I'm also disabled, and you're the change problem as well. A lot of the cleanliness of the subways is up to me and you and everybody else that rides. When you finish that cup of coffee, don't throw it there. There's a garbage can there. But if it's not there, take it with you and put it somewhere else. And if we all pitched in our five cents, it'd be beautiful. But as imperfect as things might be now, they compare very well to a transit system in the 70s, when John was new to the subways, when the New York City subway was the poster child for urban decay. Particularly the 7 train was all painted white and the graffiti on that was unbelievable. All over the system, it was really terrible. And we had these old cars with the up and down windows and the fans overhead and the dust blown out of them when you turn on the fan in the summer. It was really terrible. The stations are very modernised since I was there. The clocks, the maps, you can use the cell phone. There's nice marble walls. The workers in New York's subways are essential to the machine that makes the city what it is. Yet, too often they are taken for granted, and their well-being is hardly given a second thought. But they do have a powerful voice on their side, the Transit Workers' Union of America. It is not a shock to learn that John, a working-class Dubliner, found his way to this particular union, and it is less shocking that it was another native of Ireland, 
with its proud legacy of contribution to unions in the United States, was a founder of the TWU. That man was Kerryman Mike Quill, and he remains a legend in organised labour, earning the admiration during his lifetime of the giants of social justice of the era, the likes of Martin Luther King Jr. The great guy was from Kilgarvan in County Kerry, and at that place today they have a beautiful monument erected to his memory. And they were still talking about him when you joined? Oh yes, oh yes, yes. Great man, Mike. And he was very small and feisty. And used to stand up in an orange box. And he went at it and thumped. And they listened to him. Back in 19, I think it was 1934, when he formed the TWU, Transport Workers Union. Up to that time, their conditions were deplorable. Walked a half a day, no more work for you. You were sent home. Mike was able to discover a sick time, vacations, working conditions, heating and bathrooms, facilities in the terminals. He called a couple of strikes, of course, and the big one was 1966, when John Lindsay was mayor. He took office on the 1st of January, and Mike was bargaining for the contract. So Mike told him, if you don't get this or that, we're going to pull the plug and we're going to go on strike. Lo and behold, he went on strike. The city was in chaos. They took Mike to court, and he went down in front of the judge, and the judge told him to put his men back to work. And he said, no, I'm not putting the men back to work till we get what we're demanding. So the judge told the security guys in the court, take him, lock him up, lock him up. So when he was walking to the cell, he turned around and he says to the judge, I hope you drop dead in your robes. I think it was one day later, poor Mike dropped dead himself in the cell. As we move away from John's career in the subways, to other stories of his life, there is one day in New York City that stands out above all others in his 35 years as a transit worker, as it does for everyone in town that day. 9-11 I was working for what we call a platform job. I had more seniority now so I got off the train. So I was at 57th Street and 7th Avenue and this girl came down going to work. It was a quarter to nine in the morning at 8.46 and she says that uh, did you hear a plane crash into the World Trade Center? I said, no, you've got to be kidding. Oh, she says, no. So with that, my dispatcher at that time was a lady. And she come around to me, John, clear the station, clear the station, lock up everything, get everybody out. Plane has hit the World Trade Center. So there was another guy walking with me. So we had to get all the people off the trains, clear the station, lock the gates. I did this and I went up onto the street and I looked down 7th Avenue and I could see the, the stump like of the World Trade Center and the flames and the smoke coming out and everybody's hugging one another and they're all crying. I'll never forget that. That was terrible. 9-11. Lord rest all the uh, all the uh, firemen we lost, paramedics and civilians and cops. They really give it a give it a roll that day.
So let's head back now to the Dublin of John's childhood. Ring a ring, Rosie, as the light declines, I remember Dublin City and the red old times. I was born in Ringsend, in Gaelic called Ring Wurlefen. It's at the end, Ringsend. It's only about a 12-15 minute ride from O'Connell Street. Opposite Rings End across the water is Clontarf, where Cromwell lived. If you have even the most basic knowledge of Irish history, Oliver Cromwell needs no introduction. I went to the primary school first in Rings End, and then I went to the national school in Sandymount, started to see in Sandymount. After that, I went to the technical school in the day for two years, and I went to two years at the night school, technical school. Great fishing village in yonder years. I used to do a lot of salmon fishing and trawling for flounders and place. And we go out about seven o'clock in the evening, and we trawl till about five in the morning and bring in maybe four or five boxes of flounders and place and send them off to the market. And then the hotels bought them from the market. I also, being alongside the water, I was never a great swimmer, but I loved to be in the boats. And we had an annual regatta where the guys rowed in the boats. You row maybe ten boats, four guys and a coxswain in each boat. You rowed out for about a mile and a half, two miles. You turned around the buoy and you come back. And first back, of course, wins the race. But you had to train like a footballer. You had to train a couple of nights a week. And it was a hot summer's evening. <laughs> you had welts in your fingers and sore knees and sore ends. <laughs> so you know what it's like. And once in a while, trying to get the start when the gun went off, you, you tried to get the quick start and you break one of the oars. Oh, all hell is gone now. So now you've lost, you've only three oars then. I did that for years, so you had the rings and regatta, the Dunleary regatta, the Greystones regatta, the Darky regatta, and we used to finish up on August Monday with the Wicklow regatta, which was the longest. It was three miles out and three miles back. And only the fittest survived. I was very fond of football when I was a young fellow. I started playing football from the age of five or six all the way up. I loved that. And up into senior football with Glendagale in Dublin. A lot of the Dublin footballers of past Dublin teams played for Glendagale as well. The football John refers to is Gaelic football, of course, and he has mentioned a prominent Ringsend Gaelic football club, Clannagale, which translates more or less to Clan of the Irish. But sport, like everything else, and particularly football, has other connotations in Irish history. Ringsend also has a deep and proud tradition in that other football, the one that came from across the Irish Sea. Soccer is very prominent in Ringsend. Two teams originally came from Ringsend. Shelburne football club, they called them the Red Blazers, and then you had Shamrock Rovers, great team, Shamrock Rovers, then they eventually moved to Milltown, now they're out in Tallow, I believe. Yeah, two great, two great teams, a lot, of, a lot of kids grew up playing for Shelburne and Shamrock Rovers that made it to the top English clubs in the Premier League and second division in English and Scottish football. Was there any tension between a lad and a who was all lads back then, who would have been playing soccer and Gaelic football? Or was there a rule that said you couldn't do both? 
Yes, you couldn't play Gaelic football if you were playing soccer. There was a ban, and that ban was very strict. So much so, I'm not going to mention any names, but one time I went to Dalymount Park myself. Dalymount Park was a major soccer stadium in Dublin, where the Irish national soccer team played for years. And like I am now, I had the mask over my face. I was about 16 or 17, and I noticed a couple of county footballers, I'm not saying what counties, they were there, and they were all muffled up like this to see the international games. But I think it was a stupid thing. But it's gone now, it's gone. Now some guys can play soccer and play Gaelic. Like up here in Gaelic Park. Some of them play for Lansdowne and some might play for uh, Donegal or Cavan or whatever the case may be. Can you explain, John, why there was a ban to begin with? They wanted to concentrate on the Gaelic solely. And they figured if you went and played the soccer or vice versa, that you got injured. So you got injured playing soccer, but I wanted you to play next Sunday Gaelic football and you come along and tell me, oh, I hope my knee playing soccer. You don't think it was a political thing? Oh, there was politics in the show. Oh, yes, yes. They didn't want the foreign games coming. Yes, foreign games is the word. That was a very popular word. It wasn't playing soccer, you were playing a foreign game because the foreign game was the soccer and it played all over the world. But it was primarily an English game. Prime English. It was found in England, wasn't it? Dublin is a city of immigrants. Not immigrants from other countries, although their numbers have risen sharply in recent years, but immigrants from the rest of Ireland, where subsistence agriculture was prominent. Dublin is where the good-paying jobs are. Many Dubliners have parents from down the country, as is the expression. My father was from North Kerry, a place called Ballyduff. And my mother, Lord Rester, was from Limerick. Hey, you Dublin country, they used to call me. <laughs> ah yes, the pejorative culture, a corruption of the word agricultural, as in someone from rural Ireland. The cultures might in turn refer to Dubliners as Jackines, Another one of those politically loaded words common in Ireland. My father was superintendent in the school, technical school, for, oh, 35, 36 years. That's a good job. Yeah, great job it was. Indeed, the good job came in handy as there were many mouths to feed for Mr. Houlihan of Ring's End. There was nine of us in the family, six girls and three boys. Now, my eldest sister, Mary, she passed away about two years ago. Next to her is my eldest brother, Bert. He lives in Yorkshire. He's about 86 or 87. Then I have Margaret in Dublin. She's about 84. Christine in Dublin. She's about 82. Then there's me. I'm 80. Then I had a brother just passed away, Lord Demersonum, with the pandemic in June. Then I have another sister in Yorkshire, Teresa. And then I have another girl after her, Philomena. She's in Wales. She has her own business in there. Uh, pottery and then I had another little girl Agnes who was kind of uh, handicapped and she lived to be 55 she passed away a couple of years ago and the father and mother too so we lived in Rings End we all grew up down Rings End we had hard times like everybody else but we survived we were very happy and we were never hungry thank God Dublin is a big city by some standards and small by others it has a river with a south side and a north side 
and lots of railway tracks that run all over, so it's not so easy to tell which side of them you might live on. But Dubliners know. There was a lot of class distinction in Dublin then. If you're applying for a job in Dublin and you put down Sandy Mount or uh, Mount Marion or Sandyford, they'd look at it, well, you could get the job, but look where he comes from, you know? And if you went for one of these jobs and you put down you lived in Ballsbridge, you have a very good chance of getting in. But if you put down you lived in O'Pierce Street or Mackin Street, which is, you know, not the same as Ballsbridge, you had a hard job to get in. I know a girl one time over there and she applied for a job and she lived in Sandymount. Very good education. And she was qualified for the job. But she, she was turned down, she heard it, eventually because she came from such and such a place. Her background wasn't great, even though she was qualified for the job. See, that's the thing about America. You can do the job here, you're in. Man, woman, black or white, doesn't matter. That's one of the great things about America. I worked as an apprentice laser. I was with that for about three years, and then the place closed up and I couldn't get going there again. Then I was in the, uh, I was in the ESB for 12 years. The ESB, the Electricity Supply Board, is the name given to the power utility in Ireland. And they cut out that job. And then I did different odd jobs around Dublin. I like driving, I did. So I got a job with CIE for a couple of years. CIE, an acronym for the Irish Gaelic Chorus Umper Erin, the Irish transit system for buses and trains. So John wasn't entirely new to transit when he landed a job with the New York City subways. Then I come over here. Before we leave John's Dublin and head back again to America, let's take a quick look, it being December and all, at the festive season long ago in Ringsend. We always put up the decorations from corner to corner. And the big thing was, of course, it wasn't a turkey, it was a goose. Because turkey was very expensive in Dublin in them days. We used to buy a big goose and the mother would clean and wash it and stuff it with roast potatoes and that. On Christmas Eve, my dad would get a turnip, a big turnip, and got a hole in the turnip. And we had this big three pound red candle, the Christmas candle. And he put the candle into there and secured it and put that into a basin of water and put it on the window and pulled back the drapes. And everybody knelt down and he lit the candle and he said a prayer. Last one going to bed had to make sure the candle was blown out overnight. And then uh, Christmas morning, we all went to 10 o'clock children's mass. And of course, you didn't get your gifts till we come back for mass. And we raced to open our gifts and some of us were crying that I didn't like this. Or as soon as I put it on, Mammy or Daddy, it broke. And it was pound the man. You were out there playing with your tyres all day and you had fun. Then you come in, you had your dinner at one or two o'clock in the afternoon. Santa Claus was a big part. And if you're bold, you're going to get it docking on the corner of the bedpost and you'd have a lump of coal in it. If you were a good boy or a good girl, you got what you wanted. So go to bed, say your prayer, and fall asleep, and when you get up in the morning, you'll know Santa has come. Thank you.
coming from Ringsend for all the ships and all the boats uh, around about 5 to 12 at night because we were supposed to be in bed so the parents would say we let you up on one occasion that you be quiet you're not going outside you can listen to the boats blowing the, the horns so they do that for about half an hour or so I lived right on Galway Bay yes Lovely spot. Only a few hundred yards from the water, actually. Lovely and, spot. And at midnight, all the boats on the bay would... Yes, yes, yes. So I'm very familiar. We'd go out to the front of the house and we'd watch all the boats out on the bay. And they'd do it for half an hour. Half an hour, yes. Yeah. You will have noticed about John's and my own attempt to mimic the sounds of boats at sea ushering in a new year. Unfortunately, once heard, our efforts cannot be unheard. But as we got older, we went down the street to the church. There was this big square, and they used to light a bonfire. So people used to bring out old, old chairs, old tables, old mattresses, threw them in there, and I said, the guard, they are coming. They don't mind, they won't bother us. John makes reference to the Gardaí, the Garda Siachana, the Guardians of the Peace, or the Irish Police Force in English. There's the Irish language making an appearance everywhere and anywhere. We did the big bonfire, long behold, we'd go home about one o'clock. When they come down to go to Mass the next day, it was still smouldering. <laughs> That's one thing that stands out. And so we returned to New York to see and hear the things that nurtured John's soul. I was about 14. I sang in a talent competition in Dublin, and there was about 25 people in it. I didn't win because a girl on the piano beat me. So I was finishing up number two. So a couple of people said, why don't you keep singing? So after that, I didn't bother. It was only when I came over here to America that I started to sing. You know, people were asking at different dinner dances and dances, anyone to sing the national anthem. That's how I started. To sing in Irish, in Gaelic, and also the Star Spangled Banger in English. So that's how I got going. I sang with the Hibernian Festival singers here on Long Island for four years as a tenor with a group. We had a group of uh, about 85, 90 people. And we toured one year in the 80s, we toured France and we went to Lourdes and we sang at a high mass in the famous Notre Dame Cathedral, which I was very proud of. Then we also visited Normandy in France. All those American heroes that laid to rest in Normandy. And we sang there. And we saw the, the beach where they landed. Oh, it was very touching. Very touching. So now that I live in Brooklyn, I got to know Nina de Gregorio. Nina is 85, 86 years of age now. She recruited me to join the Italian Opera Company. And I said to myself, what is an artist guy doing in the Italian Opera Company of Brooklyn? So I'd rehearse and I'd sing my artist numbers in rehearsal and she'd have me listed as a tenor for two numbers. Danny Boy or I'd take you home again, Kathleen, which she loved. And when it comes to my chance to sing at the hall or in the concert, she says, now I'd like to introduce you to our Irish tenor, John Hulland. <laughs> it was so funny. And all these Italian people were clapping. <laughs> it was so funny. That's how I got going. And I've been with this opera company now for about 10 or 11 years. And I like it because it's all local. Last Sunday, we had the great privilege of singing in St. Mark's Roman Catholic Church in Sheepshead Bay. We were to be there at 4 o'clock. We did the rehearsal on Friday and we sang for an hour on 
Sunday. The side altar, which was very tall, was draped with two black curtains on the front and the side. And behind it was this beautiful crib, massive crib. So my job at about a quarter to five, when all the other singers had finished, was to sing O Holy Night. And once I'm singing O Holy Night, they had two people lowering the curtain very slowly down to the end. It was absolutely beautiful. Of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and ever pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, O oh, hear the angel voices. And John's partner, his significant other, Lucy, how did they meet? Did you meet Lucy through the music? Uh, no, I didn't meet Lucy through the music. I met Lucy at a dance hall up here in, in Brooklyn. It was on a Saturday night. How long have you been with Lucy now? A couple of years. Good few years. <laughs> as long as I can remember, John. Yeah, more, good than, more than two. I was going off to ask this other girl to dance. And there was a big crowd on the floor. And... This girl happened to bump into me. She was going somewhere else and I was going that way. And the girl I was going to get to dance was already gone. So I said, would you like to dance, please? She says, yeah. So we're still dancing. <laughs> and where exactly in Brooklyn does John live? This is called Bentonhurst. Lovely neighbourhood and very safe. As you can see, they're all homeowners around it. They're all homes, mostly Italian, some Russian. I went out to work at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, 4 o'clock. I went out to work at 2 in the morning. I went to work at 4 o'clock, 3.30 in the morning. I never had a problem. Great neighbourhood. Then you have Dyker Park, Dyker Beach, Dyker Golf Course down here. Like, like everybody else, we all go through rough times and good times and bad times. But I always have faith, no matter what happens to you, that it's going to get better. I pray about it. I go to church about it. And give it to God. I give it to the Blessed Mother. And she'll carry you over. And as you go along and you go along, you realise you are getting over that, what was bothering you. I've had several problems, big ones too, that nobody knows about. And I kept them myself. You give them to God and you put them on his cross. And he's going to carry them with you or for you. But you've got to have the faith. So John, take us through life under the cosh of the virus. And offer us up some good old-fashioned Dublin common sense while you're at it. About three weeks ago, I was going to visit my, my friend, Tom Sickless, the great pianist. Tom is 95 now and he's homebound. So every couple of weeks we go over there and we bring him over lots of foods. I bring him over all the papers I save up from and his wife. I don't stay too long there with him. I see these guys erecting this tent about three blocks away. City of New York. I says, what is this? So I went on to Tom. I delivered the food to him and I delivered the newspaper to him. And on the way back, lo and behold, this tent is up. 
and I see three nurses there and a couple of guys on the computer. I parked the car and I went over there to see what was going on. Setting up a test station. There was only two people in front of me. I got online right away and got tested. Oh, I couldn't believe it. So she says, name and address and phone number, blah, blah, blah. And you'll have the result. We'll call you negative or positive within three days. That was a Friday or Saturday. On Monday afternoon or Tuesday, I got the result negative. I was delighted with myself. But I take good care, just like yourself. I wear the mask, I socialise, wash the hands. This thing is very serious. And this is what's wrong. People are not taking it serious. But now, when it hits home to you, and we said you have a family, and there's five or six of you at the table, and one is not there next week, because he didn't listen. It's like the people celebrating on Thanksgiving. You were asked to stay home. It's not so much Governor Cuomo. It's the scientists. He's only listening to the scientists. So hopefully with the vaccine now, it's going to put a big dent in it. And so to another of John's passions, an American hero from County Wexford. Commodore John Barry, founding father of the American Navy. I was a member of Commodore Barry Club for about 20, 25 years. I was vice president for many years. We have a membership of about 25 people. 14 years of age when he left County Wexford. Where does a big monument to him today? He came over here and he went to sea and he graduated, became, rose up the ranks to become a skipper and lead the American Navy. And Barry was so good that the Brits offered him all kinds of money to come over and be a captain over there. And he says, not for all the tea in China would I go over there. Barry was a great man. There's monument in Philadelphia, erected room too. Every year on Memorial Sunday we go to Philadelphia and we lay a wreath on the tomb of Commodore John Barry, who was buried there. And we also go to Staten Island to Borough Hall on his birthday in September. A wreath laying ceremony because he has a massive bust on the outside of Borough Hall. And I sing the national anthem in Irish and the American. And we also go to Borough Hall on St. Patrick's uh, weekend. We go down there and we have a ceremony there too. That's here in Brooklyn? Here in Brooklyn, yes. For years, the Barney Club, most so the, the Hibernians, were looking to erect a statue or a monument outside the Navy Yard in Annapolis. That's the Naval Academy, as you know. So there's never a statue inside or outside the grounds. So they fought and fought for this for years. And then, in cooperation with the Barney Club, we got it going off the ground. We, we collected so much money. It's just inside the gate. So much so when you're going by the gate now, you see the statue and you read the inscription on it and a little history about it. That was a big achievement for the Barney Club and the ancient order of Hibernians. I went to a town hall meeting here about three or four years ago, down here in, in Brooklyn, when Mayor de Blasio was to show up. And I had to get online to ask him a question. I said, Mr. Mayor, you had in the paper last week or a couple of weeks ago that you had ordered four new ferries, Staten Island ferries. As treasurer to come at the Barney Club, would you give it your utmost consideration to name one of these ferries after Commodore John Barney? And I said, wouldn't it be lovely for the people of Staten Island and Manhattan, Commodore John Barney, on the side of the boat, wouldn't it be very appropriate? Absolutely, he says, absolutely. Two of them have come out already. There's still two more to come, but 
It's a long shot, but at least we're trying. And his extracurricular activities don't end there. I've ran nine New York City marathons, three in Boston, two in Montreal, one in Yonkers, one in Holyoke. Would you believe, and this is gospel, I've often trained and ran 100 miles a week training. Once you finish that marathon, you're a winner, because it's the only sport in the world where you can rub shoulders with the best of guys and the worst of guys. My first marathon was three hours and 52 minutes. My second one was 3.20. I got my time down to 2.59 and a half. And I'll never forget that one. When I was coming up to the line, I'm looking at the clock. And when you come into Central Park, you're coming up the hill there, but it's happening in the green. And I say, 2.54, 2.55, will I make it? So I get to 2.59 and change. Will I make it for three hours? And just as I'm getting there, a guy in front of me falls down. And I have to go like this. I have to throw myself off and get under. Just I've gone under the clock, three hours. So when I did get on the certificate, I said 259.59. I'll never forget that. Finally, there is no truth in the rumor that John is offering his Gaelic football coaching services to County Mayo at this time, instead preferring to bask in the uninterrupted run of glory his beloved Dublin embarked upon several years ago. 216, I'll never forget it. They come over with the cup and we celebrate in the New York AC, the Athletic Club. We had a massive crowd there. And we were all up on the stage dancing with the Sam Maguire. The Sam Maguire, named for a great Irish Republican and footballer, is the cup awarded to the All-Ireland Senior Football Champions each year. I sang the national anthems there that night, the Irish and the American. As regards other teams, you can't expect Dublin to drop dead and stop. They'll have to do what Dublin did. They started a bar and bring these kids up. But there is one thing, the GEA is giving too much money to Dublin for this country. I can agree with you to a certain extent on that because county powers in the country don't have the gates that they're getting in Dublin. So hopefully the other counties will have to step up because we can't only have Dublin, Kerry, Galway, Donegal. I mean, we've 32 counties. Well done, John. Spoken like a true patriot. Sort of. By the time anyone listens to this, Dublin will have been crowned for the sixth year in a row All-Ireland champions. Do you feel any compassion or even a sense of guilt that Dublin are just basically dominating football and crushing the hopes of many counties now for a long time? Uh, no. Thanks for listening to Centerpiece NY with Paul Finnegan, your presenter and producer. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can leave a review for us there, or a rating, we'd be very grateful to learn what you think of Centerpiece NY. Be sure to keep in touch on social media at Centerpiece NY. That's C-E-N-T-E-R-P-I-E-C-E-N-Y. You'll also find our podcast at centerpieceny.com. Email us at centerpieceny at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Our interview with John Houlihan was conducted in December 2020, exercising all social distancing and safety protocols, including face masks. The New York Irish Centre would like me to mention that it is the grateful recipient of grants from Ireland's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade and New York City's Department for the Aging, along with fantastic community support from listeners like you. 